a language-rich math classroom has residue around the room that supports language, both receptive and productive language. Um, so you'll see around the room visuals and colors and annotation. And you'll also see around the room sentence frames and starters. You'll see supports for students. Um, you'll hear students using those sentence frames and starters. You might see vocabulary around the room, but it's always connected to the work students are doing. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. What does a language-rich math classroom look and sound like? How do we get past simple repetition to reach a harmony of concept and language for English learners in math classes? How do we move from simply getting the right answer toward building metacognitive skills and why is this so important for English learners? We discuss these questions and much more in part two of our two-part series with Grace Kelamanic and Amy Lucenta authors of the book Routines for Reasoning, Fostering Mathematical Practices in All Students. You can find Grace and Amy's bios in part one and on our website at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. Before we get started with part two of our conversation with Grace and Amy, just a quick reminder that you can stay connected with us by joining our ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. There you can leave comments about this episode and others. You can also engage with great content like our short video series, blog posts, and articles. Finally, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This will help us continue bringing you the best topics and guests on Highest Aspirations. I also want to mention that part one of this episode was very well received by not only math teachers but uh, other content area teachers alike. Here's part two of our conversation with Grace Kalamatic and Amy Lucenta. So I've said many times that I'm not a math expert. I spent my entire career basically in language education. But reading the book, I was like really delighted to see so much crossover when it comes to academic language and English learners. And, you know, one of the most sort of prominent overarching connections I noticed was your argument. We talked about it um, briefly before that good instruction for English learners and students um, with learning disabilities is good for all students. So this is like a huge topic and one we've talked about before. Um, but I'd love to hear one or two more, because I think we've alluded to it, or specific compelling reasons why you think this is the case. Yeah. So I think that's speaking to this shift of needing kids to learn how to think and reason mathematically. So if you look at, um, in our field, it's the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics, and what we know to be good instruction is instruction that has kids working on meaty math problems, right? Like problems that you put in front of them that they don't yet know how to solve, mm -hmm. but they don't immediately know how to, what to do with, like positioning them to think and reason and, and doing, positioning them to make sense of something collaboratively. 
So it's that collaborative sense making, which means kids need to be talking with each other and working with each other. Right. So, um, so we're increasing the discourse in the classroom. Right. So there are a lot of students who I kind of know the mathematics and quote unquote can get the answer, but have a tough time explaining their thinking and what they did. Right. Yeah. Like I know that. Yep. English. Yep. English speakers, right? So like, I, oh, I did it in my head. I have the answer. But in the world in which they live, they're going to need to communicate how they're thinking about something and create an argument. And that's very language-based. Mm-hmm. So for many of the, so for a different purpose, maybe, they're also working on language and communicating mathematically with mathematical language and precision in their language, and which is something they're working on. And an English learner um, is doing that also with the additional um, with the additional load of like a lot of the words and phrases are unfamiliar, and they're trying to begin to like just learn the vocabulary and the phrases. Right, and they're doing it all collaboratively. And so, and so right, and so everyone needs to be repeating and rephrasing. We make sense of um, we make sense of the world by talking through it. Like, do you talk to yourself? ever uh yeah when in you, my head in, in my head anything I mean, in your head you know yeah i talk out loud to myself when i'm doing something hard i'm like okay wait this goes here oh and yeah, that yeah, goes yeah there. like yeah. we talk to ourselves and we often talk out loud it's part of i didn't know if it was a trick question process. oh no not a <laughs> are you crazy no it's not a trick question at all it's um we as humans do it most of us do it because it helps us process and so we're, all we're doing is saying provide kids opportunity to be doing that talking, right. but give them a partner to talk with and then hear another idea back and forth and go back and forth. Yeah. I'm not sure I specifically answered your question and maybe you can do a better job of that. Uh, I think you did that really what, what's good for English learners is reflective of how students need to be learning now, given the world they're in. And it's, uh, I always worry when we say that, that it's all good teaching, that it is, it's super critical for some students. Yeah. I, I'll let you off the hook, Amy, too, because I think, I feel like Grace did a good job, you know, explaining that. I mean, the big thing is, um, you know, that, that the students are given the opportunity to make sense of their world, as you were saying, Grace. And I think that that's like a crucial part of being able to you know, understand not only new language and new concepts in math, but also understanding the new environment that they may find themselves in, like we were talking about earlier. I mean, you're creating relationships, you're collaborating. That's all, those are all essential skills in the future. I mean, take the math completely out of the picture and that's, and that's useful. And then with the math itself, obviously it's giving you a chance to process and learn and think about your thinking, which is, uh, which is crucial as well. And that kind of leads me to um, the idea that you um, got to it in the first chapter of the book, which is about taking an, an asset-based approach. And that's another theme that like comes up in almost every episode that we do of this podcast. You know, and it's, it's one of these things where I feel like I'm constantly preaching to the choir because we talk about taking an asset-based approach and the people who are listening to this podcast are generally already doing that or learning how to do that or trying to, to do that. Um, but I think it's different, you know, when we're thinking about building learning strengths and focusing on what students can do in math. So my, my question is, uh, could you walk us through how a teacher might first kind of find out what assets their English learners um, bring 
and what they can do in a math setting. I think like lo looking at that question or reflecting on it is probably one of the most tricky ones in there. So I'm just curious to see what you'd, what you'd say to that. Yeah, it's not easy for teachers to really analyze students' assets like that. Uh, it takes time and it, and it takes deliberate attempts. Um, but we, we think the routine support teachers in doing that because uh, teachers don't have to focus on the next step. As Grace was talking earlier, it frees up their mind to focus on student thinking and uh, engagements during the routine. And we really need to unveil how kids think, what they're saying, listen to what they're saying, watch how they're making sense of the mathematics around them in relation to their mathematical thinking. And when we do that, we start to see, oh, this student always like talks first when they go into a turn and talk. Maybe it's because they're super verbal and they're ready to just dive in and talk about ideas. Or maybe they're social during class and maybe they're social because they process verbally. And that's indicative of a student who really, who, who, for whom verbal processing is a strength. And so if it's their strength, then let's use their strength to, to develop their mathematical thinking. And um, maybe for another student, you notice that even on a written um, exercise, whether it's a, a worksheet, a homework, an assessment, they do really well on their geometry tasks. That raises a question like, hmm, maybe their visual spatial processing is really strong. So let's see how that plays out. And if that's the case, we can use those strengths and build on them and, and use them to our advantage. So work from, with a visual in order to develop uh, a more abstract idea. But it takes, it takes some um, purposeful unveiling of student thinking to, to access mm -hmm. that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, using the routines is going to completely allow you to free up all the time so that you can get to know your students' assets better. But I do completely see, going back to the car metaphor, how, like, you know, taking away a little bit of the load uh, that you would be carrying when thinking about what you're going to do next in a class as a teacher allows you to pay more attention to your students, understand how they think, who they are, and more importantly, and with this particular question with English learners, what they can bring to the table instead of you know, if you're constantly frazzled and thinking about what you're going to do next and you're overwhelmed, boy, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's really, really difficult to serve those students and, and they can, you know, they, they can and do unfortunately mm -hmm. fall through the cracks. Yeah. That's our, that's our fear. Right. 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 All right. Well, another key, like another big thing, uh, topic as well that I want to address. And it's funny cause like I'm addressing all like the main points, but through a lens of math, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, is this idea of rigor and productive struggle. Like I've heard the word rigor more in the last two to three years, I feel like, than I, than I did in my entire teaching career. And I, to be honest, I'm not sure I'm in love with the word, but I think everybody knows what it means, so I'm going to use it. But like that idea of rigor and productive struggle um, is, is something that, that we've covered a lot and is, 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 is really kind of popular these days. So in the book, um, you state that when language is a challenge, a default instructional approach is to show and have the students replicate. This is an effective, I'm sorry, this is effective for building skills, but falls short on the goal of conceptual understanding and language production. So how do we get past repetition to reach what you call another expression that I really like, a harmony of concept and language? 
Yeah, like of showing students how to do something and then having them do what you've just shown them to do. Yeah, like that. I love, I just love that expression, the harmony of concept and language. So like, I, well, I'm going to let you kind of, you you wrote it. And so I'll have you kind of, I don't want to put ideas in your head. Sure. Sure. So you, language and, and mathematics, like the, the content and the language, the concept and the language is completely intertwined. Like you can't do or even think about math without using language. Right. Right. They're just woven together so that you can't separate them. So the idea is, let's stick with the car metaphor. Let's, let's make our car not be an, on, an automatic, but a manual. And for the younger uh, folks listening, that's the car with the three pedals on the floor, the gas, the brake, and that extra one. The one that's like, more fun like, to drive. The one that's more fun to drive. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, it's sort of this notion of like the clutch and the gas. When you're learning how to drive a standard, you know, you put, push the clutch in and then you ease off the clutch as you press on the gas. And there's a point at which you have engagement and the car moves forward, right? And so there's like the math and the language going on in a classroom. And if you push too much for language work and precision in language before there's understanding of the concept, it, you, students stall. Yeah. Right, like you have to find that balance. It's this constant balance between. It's not. Uh, it's sort of like when to push on the language, and that has to do with, with the load of of what you're doing. All of this work is really based in um, what it means to teach mathematical thinking and reasoning, and that's quite different from teaching a specific skill, like modeling a specific procedure or a skill and showing it and explaining it super clearly and showing it several times and walking students through it and then having them practice that skill. That's a very different thing than positioning kids to make sense of this context or problem they've never seen before and think about how they might go about approaching it and approaching it in lots of different ways. Um, the, the thinking is and the reasoning has carries a huge cognitive load. And so you really have to balance the language with that. Grace, when you're talking about this, it reminds me of um, a video we have of, of one of our routines in a classroom. And the teacher is yeah. laser focused on developing structural thinking. And the student goes to share their thinking and to set the stage for the listeners, they're looking at a visual pattern a bunch of squares put together in a in a yeah in a pattern if for lack of a better word and the student goes to describe how they're going to count the squares efficiently using a shortcut based on mathematical structure so they go to describe it and she starts by saying the triangles and and it wasn't a stall because the teacher didn't correct her. Her classmates didn't correct her. She used the incorrect word for a rectangle, but her, she was so focused on her thinking and all of her cognitive load was going to her mathematical thinking. And so the, the word triangle was irrelevant. She meant the shapes that are all the same up there. We all know they're rectangles, but she said the wrong word. And because the teacher was focused on the mathematical thinking, teacher didn't stop the student and the student was allowed to develop that mathematical thinking and share it. 
And it, it's a really um, a sharp example of the distinction between focusing on thinking and um, and language and and the gas in the clutch. Yeah, and I think I think to draw another parallel in um, in ELA in writing, students write many drafts of something, and I think the parallel in math class is classroom discourse. That's like rough draft thinking in the math classroom. Like we can't we can't expect and we don't want to force students to every time words come out of their mouth that they have to be like mathematically perfect, like final draft form. And in a math classroom where kids are discussing and talking about their ideas, it's all done in rough draft and that language that's being used gets more and more precise as the ideas get clearer and clearer. It's like expecting kids to, like, to sit down and start writing a, an essay and not make any punctuation, grammar, spelling mistakes while they're writing. They've got to get the ideas out first and work through the ideas. Right. That's great. I mean, those are, those are great examples and the extension. I, do, I loved the car metaphor at the beginning, but I love it even more now because I can just see how, how it can be extended. And, and if you don't know about, uh, you know, standard, uh, standard vehicles um, and the clutch and the gas, <laughs> on that so you understand what we're talking about. Um, but I mean, like fr from, from what I've read and, and from our conversation that we've had just, you know, over the last um, half an hour or so, um, it, it seems to me that that all of the math practices and all of what we're talking about certainly are, are it's related to language rich discourse. So I want to kind of get down to you know this is a podcast, it's audio, so it's hard to kind of see. But could you paint a picture of like what a language rich math classroom looks like and might sound like? And and again, like that we'll link to videos that will do a really good job with this. But just for the purposes of the listener who kind of wants to get an image of what this looks like, could could you break that down? Yeah, I mean, the, the reason why the math practices are so tightly connected to language rich discourse is exactly what Grace was saying that we can't really, we, we just can't think without language. And so for developing thinking, we need the language to do it. So when you walk into a math classroom that is language rich, you ask what it sounds like, there is sound. <laughs> and for more than one student, um, so what it's not is a teacher at the front of the room having a conversation back and forth with one student. It sounds like maybe a teacher posing a question and every student in the room turning and talking at once, which can be loud and feel different than a traditional classroom. A language-rich math classroom has residue around the room that supports language, both receptive and productive language. Um, so you'll see around the room uh, visuals and colors and annotation. And you'll also see around the room sentence frames and starters. You'll see supports for students. Um, you'll hear students using those sentence frames and starters. Uh, you'll see, um, you might see vocabulary around the room, but it's always connected to the work students right. are doing. So it's not a vocabulary board. There may be uh, vocabulary words attached to work that's been discussed. And in, in a full group discussion, again, it's more, more than one student participating. Uh, we, Grace, you're gonna have to correct me on the statistics on this, I might um, butcher it, but a colleague of ours 
shared this study with us where they followed around English learners for an entire week in a high school setting. And they tracked not how often the student spoke, but how many minutes the student had an opportunity to speak. And their data showed students had, this is where, this is where it gets um, sketchy, seven minutes, yep. Grace? Seven minutes. Seven minutes total out of a week of school. Yeah, we, so th that reminds me of a podcast episode we did relatively recently with um, Ivanya Soto, who wrote the book, um, EL Shadowing is a Catalyst for Change. Um, and she talks about the power of shadowing English learners. And one of the things that she mentions is, you know, the lack of opportunity for students to speak. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's funny, like, as you're speaking, I'm, I'm picturing the class that you're, that you're, that you're describing, which, which to a sort of a traditionalist, perhaps like an old school principal or evaluator who might come in and be like, what is this chaos? Like, it reminds me of what my Spanish class was like on the best days, right? And I was lucky enough to have uh -huh. an administration and leaders who would come in really process what was going on, ask me questions and understand that, yes, this is in fact, it's messy. Like it's a little chaotic. It's kind of loud. That's just how it is. Um, and so it's just, again, that overlap is, is what like my takeaway from this entire uh, experience of me looking at your book and getting prepared for this conversation is I hope others really kind of um, are, are taking that in as well, because I think it's crucial for like the audience that we're, that we're you know, um, concerned with now with, with English learners. Um, you know, that, 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 that sort of kind of chaotic nature of conversation and just working things out, it's messy and it's supposed to be messy. Um, so that's just really nice to hear. Yeah. And that messiness is exactly why we need uh, the supports yeah. to focus. Yeah. To focus the language, to focus the conversation, to keep that mathematical thinking goal front and center all the way through because it does get messy mm -hmm. in the meantime. Yeah. It's the classic, I mentioned earlier, the classic structure and agency. You just can't have one without the other. Um, and, and be successful. Um, so that, I think that's crucial. Well, one point of clarification, you, you both have mentioned, have used the word residue a, a few times. I just want to make sure, I think I, I think I know what you mean by that, but just for listeners who may be a little confused, what do you mean by, by residue? Yeah, residues, we, we sometimes create our own language and forget that we need to define uh, it for folks. But <laughs> residue is uh, residual. It's, it is exactly, um, that, that there's a conversation that happens, but it doesn't just disappear. Right. That we create residue as we go through. Um, and so we, we're actually old school in that we love chart paper mm -hmm. because when, it, when you have a discussion, all hands on deck around chart paper and you mark it up, it lasts. Yeah. Uh, one of our concerns about technology, although we love technology, things like smart boards, you can annotate on a smart board, you can layer in um, color and labels and vocabulary and then you switch to the next screen and that's all gone unless you're recording it you have to be really deliberate about that I fell into that trap where I had a smart board it was like the coolest thing ever and I felt like I was great at it and this was awesome and then a student asked me hey can I get all that stuff that you did the other day and I'm like no you can't because <laughs> but oh, I learned so my lesson funny. and I began recording it you know and, and then it becomes a really powerful tool but I also am a huge fan of chart paper it, it is a tool, a valuable tool if you record it. However, it, in the class lesson itself, like in the lesson, if you switch to the next screen, even if it's recorded, students no right. longer see Got it. it. Yep. And so if it's on chart paper and you just move it to the side, students still have it to reference. Uh -huh. So if you kick out some language, say you look at a task and start with generating some noticings about the task, 
If you record those noticings on a smart board, you're creating some residue, but it's short-term residue yeah. because you turn the page. If you create it somewhere that it's, it's lasting, so students have it to reference throughout the lesson, then it's valuable residue for them during that lesson and beyond. Yeah, great points. Um, okay, couple more questions. Um, and this one, uh, we're getting to the, to the part where, where I play devil's advocate a little bit, um, which I like to do, a little, little tension is always nice. Um, so we've talked a lot about metacognition um, and developing thinking rather than getting the answer, um, which, which I am a full, huge fan of. I think it's great. And I think most of us who are most of the listeners believe that as well. However, you know, there are teachers out there, there are educators out there who have a hard time with that. And honestly, they don't want to do it, but they've, they've done things a certain way for a long time. So my first question is, how do you get this or how do we collectively get this concept across to teachers and students who, who may not be familiar with, with anything besides like getting the right answer. Because I, I experienced that in, in lots of different contexts. I experienced it in contexts where I had students, um, you know, who I had lots of English learners. I had lots of students who, um, who, who came from sort of difficult backgrounds. And then I, uh, I, I experienced it when I was working in schools that are really like, quote unquote, academically high performing, where students were just only concerned about the grades. So it's not just the teachers, it's the students as well. So that first question is, how do, we, how do we get that concept across? And then the second part of the question is, how does this all play out in the face of these like high stakes exams that all students need to take? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, great question, because we're trying to make the case for really shifting the way, uh, shifting a bunch of the focus during mathematics it's a sea classrooms. Change. Yeah, it's a huge change. And um, I think, you know, you can try to make the case with, well, our kids are growing up in a world that's different. And so we need to prepare them for that. Um, I think that one of the things we often say is our students think that the whole purpose of this lesson is like to get the answers. Like if you walk out of math class and all you know is that the answer to the question is 47, that's not usable tomorrow or the next day or no. beyond. Like you have to walk out of math class with more than knowing what the answer was. And so we're trying to like shift from not not focusing so much on the answer and the steps you took, but the real question is, how did you even know to do what you did to get that answer? Like, and that's where we're back to the same thing. Like, I need to know when I look at this problem, how to make sense of it, how to think about approaching it, and what to do if I get stuck. And so I think it's stopping to think about, in math class, <laughs> If I'm a student, why am I being asked to do this problem? What is it that I'm supposed to be learning from it? Because I'm not being asked to do it just to get the answer. There's something in theory I'm learning by doing this problem. Now, having said that, there are times where kids are learning straightforward procedures, whether it's you know how to multiply two numbers or how to simplify an equation or how to graph a line, that those are procedures and by getting the correct answer that we then sort of have some assessment that, oh, I know how to do that thing. But to the extent to which the thing we're being asked to do is to um, solve a problem that might have many different ways of, to go about solving it or defend whether or not our answer is right, 
then we have to focus on the thinking and reasoning. And often teachers will look at um, test results from high-stake tests, and they'll look at the questions where lots of students struggled. And they'll say, oh, well, you know what? It was just written hard. It was my students couldn't read that. There was a lot of language there, and that's why they couldn't do it. And when you, when you look at test results, typically the questions that are really straightforward computation are the ones kids do really well on. And the questions that stymie them are the ones that require the more thinking and reasoning. And so I think rather than taking a question that had multiple parts to it and trying to break it down into little teeny bits, what we're arguing is like jump into the messiness of the thinking and reasoning and build these ways of reasoning like mathematicians, reasoning about quantities, thinking about repetition, reasoning through mathematical structure, because then you can approach a wide range of problems. I, I think we were just overlapping in the same thought, Grace. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're starting to see some evidence and compelling evidence that teaching the math practices increases kids' capacity to approach problems they've never seen before. Mm. So uh, we're starting to see results of this and getting some soft data around it, even knowing that it's really hard to attribute research and education to one aspect. But when we work with groups of students, we see that when we explicitly build structural thinking, that is, they, they know how to interpret um, an expression or an equation by looking at its parts, by chunking it, by interpreting operations before they start diving in and calculating on it, that then when they look at equations they've never seen before, like maybe ones involving trig functions and they've never seen trig functions, they interpret it and are able to solve it correctly. Right. We have a, yeah, it's, it's compelling. Another situation where um, students actually have the opportunity to take a standardized test halfway through the year. So, um, and they were algebra one students. And algebra one it has a very predictable trajectory in that the beginning of the year sits in uh, linear equations, linear relationships. And uh, it advances later in the year to quadratics. So that's really oversimplified. But the teacher knew the students were going to go sit for this exam and they hadn't seen content yet. But it was going to give the teacher some valuable information about the content they had studied. Mm -hmm. And this teacher had actually been focusing on the standards for mathematical practice all fall and into the winter. So the first half of the year. And he got the results back from this standardized test that he expected um, students would really struggle on stuff they had never seen before. And they were getting questions right that he didn't think they'd be able to, to have success with. Right. And the only thing he could attribute it to was his focus on structural thinking through these routines and making the, like what, what kids pay attention to, what they ask themselves, the aspects of structure that are important, making all that explicit so they could apply it again. So that's compelling. We're starting to see it. Um, another group of teachers um, really focused on quantitative reasoning and saw internal gains, not on standardized tests, but on the data they collected over the year. And those students were um, in a co-taught classroom. At least half of them were on IEPs. And they saw... Uh, marked difference in focusing 
on quantitative reasoning, that students independently were approaching a problem and listing out quantities, things they could countermeasure before they dove in and tried to solve it. So it's, it's definitely gaining traction and we're getting these anecdotal um, research, I don't want to call them research, but we're getting anecdotes of successes and that we're seeing this on exams. And that's compelling for teachers as well. Yeah, you know, I was, we're sort of exploring um, math and English learners a lot more um, seriously as a company and as an organization now. And so I've had the opportunity to sit with colleagues and look at some of the standardized tests questions that come out that are for everyone and the ones that are specifically for English learners, et cetera. And my colleague mentioned something I thought was really compelling, like, boy, it's like a perfect storm for, um, for, for the need of, um, of really making sure that we're teaching the right kind of academic vocabulary and, and really giving the students the tools they need, many of which you've described through the routines, so that they can handle these kinds of questions, which are very, you know, wordy, um, and they contain a lot of vocabulary that needs to be focused on. And as you're mentioning, um, they really require the student to be able to think about their own thinking and sort of use um, some of the problem solving strategies they tried and tested before to get the job done. So I think, I think we're at a really interesting time right now where both from the, from the bottom up and from the top down, we're starting to see things kind of um, uh, overlap. And perhaps that will, that will kind of address some of the concerns that I've always had about how do we get teachers and students to kind of buy in to this new, uh, in, in, my, in my opinion, and probably yours more productive way um, of learning math and really every subject. Mm -hmm. Well, we had a student actually reflect on experiences in these instructional routines and and the focus on mathematical thinking. And we had we actually had gone into their classroom for a bunch of days and and engaged the students in the routines. And at the end, she said this. She gave us some valuable information about her reflection on the experiences. And then she said, "But I really wish." you had come in before we took our standardized yeah, test. Yeah. And that was pretty powerful as well. Yeah, we've heard things like that as well when we piloted certain things to the students. Uh, well, one particular student said, you know, why, why didn't we just teach it this way the first time? And it's very similar, you know, uh, <laughs> sort of in terms of, of teaching that, that uh, uh, keeping academic um, vocabulary and, and conversations and thought, you know, certainly not to the extent that you're doing it, but um, it's keeping it top of mind. So let's move on to just a couple um, general questions and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, we ask everyone who comes on the podcast um, if there's a book or other resource that's had um, sort of a, a profound influence on, on them professionally or personally. Um, and we, we, we always sort of curate all those and every year we release our 10 must reads. So um, curious if there's a book or resource that you both might, uh, might recommend to, um, to listeners. Sure, I said, do we have to just say one? <laughs> you can do two if you want. I, okay. You know, I know there's a lot. We're all readers. We're all academics. But yeah, try to keep it one or two. All right. Um, so I think I'd start with an oldie but a goodie, like back in the 90s, um, a book called Fostering Algebraic Thinking by Mark Driscoll. And the reason uh, that that was so influential um, in our thinking is he was one of the first people to take a stab at what it looks like what mathematical thinking looks like. And this particular book takes a look at what is what does algebraic thinking look like? like? What are students, what are those habits of mind that you develop when you're working in the field of algebra? 
you know, what do you pay attention to? Can, what are the questions you ask yourself? You can see why I'd like that book. Yeah. And so that, um, and to be truthful, when the standards for mathematical practice came out, we, that we used his sort of his framework and approach for algebraic thinking. And we brought that to the standards for mathematical practice and pulled out of the, um, math practice standards, those three avenues of thinking, reasoning quantitatively, reasoning structurally, and reasoning through repetition. Um, so that had a huge influence on our work. Yeah, so one, only one. I know, it's hard. I think- Well, I, uh, said, I said one or two, I said one or two, if you wanted to. Well, I'm gonna marry two together then. Okay. So, <laughs> um, years ago, I remember hearing about this Quasar project and the levels of cognitive demand, and I heard about them solely in a math content lens, that we can look at a math task and see whether it's actually causing kids to think and reason. And then I heard about it again and read about it um, in, the, in the implementing standards-based math instruction. It was a casebook for professional development, but in reading about the study and hearing that when we engage students in higher demand tasks, learning gains are greater. And not just some students, but all students. Mm -hmm. And I remember being really moved by this, like, wait a minute, we're not engaging all students in high demand tasks, and we're not engaging them in the kind of thinking and reasoning Grace just talked about in the fostering algebraic thinking. For some students, we're keeping the demand low with good intention. Mm -hmm. And it really was pivotal, pivotal for me to be thinking about all learners and each and every student having access to, de to develop thinking and reasoning and um, not uh, holding some students from that opportunity. And then um, Grace and I were both heavily influenced by Yudit Moskovitz's work in understanding language in Stanford and the connecting what it takes to teach and learn mathematical thinking for English learners. That was a, a seminal work as well. Great. Yeah, I've just started to kind of look a little bit at, at some of that work um, as well. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Well, that's great. So we have a few books um, that folks can follow up on. And how can people learn more about the work that you're doing? We mentioned the book, um, Routines for Reasoning. What else would you recommend people um, look at to find out what you're doing? Well, Grace and I do our best to maintain our website, which is at fosteringmathpractices.com. And uh, we put, as, as best we're able, we put some current thinking up there. We put where we'll be and the kinds of sessions we're doing with folks. Um, so that's, that's really our portal for sharing the work we're doing. Uh, we're always uh, learning at the national conferences at NCTM, National Council of Teachers of Mathematics, and NCSM National. Actually, they don't call themselves that anymore, but... National Council of Supervisors of Mathematics. Um, they have an annual conference every year and they always have equity strands. So we're always there as well, uh, working and learning. Uh, Grace, where else would you recommend people could find out more? Well, I think starting at our website's a great place. Also on the website is all of our routines are posted there with, um, with materials to get started with them, from PowerPoint, sample, sample math tasks video that you can see routines in action in the classroom and of course the routines for reasoning book and if and if folks can sit tight uh the second yeah, i don't know the next book is coming uh in 2021 we're in the middle of writing it right now 
that'll be the and next <laughs> that'll be the next podcast mark your calendars for both the book and the i'm gonna book you we right just now. said that out loud now we have to finish it <laughs> i know yeah right um well, th this honestly, this has been, uh, uh, I've really enjoyed speaking with you both. I enjoyed preparing for this, which says a lot, again, given my experience with math. But I mean, you're really, and I think like listeners probably feel the same way, you're really marrying lots of the concepts that we talk about here in Highest Aspirations all the time. So I loved being able to structure this conversation around those big topics, but really um, giving folks a perspective um, on math. And I just really appreciate the work you're doing. I appreciate you coming on and 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 really you know working with us through um, through an English language language learner lens, um, and uh, just very appreciative of uh, of of this collaboration and hope to do something else in the future. Uh, thank you, Steve. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for shining light on on math teaching and learning for ELLs, and thanks for giving us this chance to hang out with you. Absolutely, more to come. Thank right, you. Take care. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.